Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. It's me, Tavis Killian, bringing you another episode of Monday Madness on this slushy Monday morning of March the 22nd. A decent amount of snow fell again just after that big dump from a week ago melted, but things are so warm that it's already melting and heavy. But I know you didn't come here for my small talk on the weather that you could deduce just by looking out your window. You came here for the best weekly recap of all things oil and gas. So of course, we must kick things off with WTI pricing. Things are looking okay at $61.60 per barrel at the time of writing this script. This is a little below the trend line of recent months, but I don't think it should cause anyone any alarm. Prices have been steadily climbing since the beginning of November, and a few dips here and there didn't stop anybody. If you look at a pricing chart for WTI over the past few months, you will notice that at about the middle of December through March, there has been a bit of a dip. In mid-December, it peaked at mid-49s before falling to 46, only to resume its climb a few days later. In mid-January, it almost hit $54 per barrel before falling to an almost even 52. February showed another $2.5 dip until correcting itself right before it had the opportunity to fall below $60. March, on the other hand, had a little bit of a dip right at the start of the month, and about now as we are in the middle. It quickly rebounded from the dip at the beginning of the month, reaching a high of $66.42 on the 4th. Then it spent the 10th through the 12th hugging a $66 pricing point and kind of dipped. Like I mentioned, that price is a little bit lower today. And this is the biggest dip we've seen since about August of this year in terms of just magnitude, not percent. But I really don't think that this is anything to worry about. We've been covering so many things in the past few weeks that should be applying upward pressure that I really do think it will get better. I mean, it looks like there may be a temporary ceiling at $66, but I am confident that prices will break through that. I feel that by this time next month, it is entirely possible that we will be in the neighborhood of $68 to $70. I hope that doesn't sound too crazy to you out there listening. I mean, in fact, it is a pretty conservative estimate as prices have been going up about $6 per month since November, and we already saw near $66 per pricing in the middle and beginning of March, so I encourage you to make your own wager, and perhaps we will revisit the prices in a month. Well, not perhaps, you know we're going to, but we'll see how the predictions held up. To follow that up, we have the rig count. If you remember, I predicted that the rig count would go up or sideways until about the middle of March. And until then, we saw a few weeks of small gains along with a week of no change at all. I made the prediction in response to the federal drilling moratorium, and it seemed to go well until our episode last week where I was right, the middle of March hit, and we fell a rig. If you remember, I reacted to it like it would be the beginning of many more weeks of lost rigs. So, what happened this past week? Well, the most recent rig count shows that we are up nine rigs, baby. Man, that last report really had me going. I was certain that this week would be way worse, but I am so glad to be wrong. Of course, the Permian was able to put up four rigs. We already know that if there's a big gain, we are 90% sure to see it centered at the Permian. But what might surprise you is that New Mexico was actually responsible for the charge. As a state, New Mexico tacked on seven rigs, while Texas lost one. Big ups for New Mexico as 40% of the nation's crude oil production on federal lands takes place there, so this drilling moratorium has not been easy for them. But who cares that the Permian added so many rigs? I'm excited for the second place stud of the week. I can tell you that the Williston put up a good fight with a positive change of 8%, but it was actually the Eagleford who netted a 10% increase. So congratulations to the Eagleford for somehow becoming this week's winner. 
This is pretty atypical because the Eagleford is not as competitive a gas play as some other basins. I mean, if you're looking for lower lifting costs, you would definitely find yourself in the Permian or even the Marcellus. Hell, the Bakken wouldn't be terrible when compared to those two, but the Eagleford is not nearly as competitive on a cost per barrel scale. Don't get me wrong, Eagleford is home to some of the cleanest production in terms of low emissions, and the costs aren't too terrible, but to me, it would make more sense to see a rig count increase in those other places I listed. Now the Eagleford has two more rigs up than the Marcellus Basin. Oh, what a report. If you would have told me that after the decrease last week, we would have seen big gains in the Eagleford, I tell you what, I, I would have laughed in your face. <laughs> Since this whole federal moratorium thing is kicked off, we are now up 33 rigs. Who would have thought? Lastly, you know we have to talk about those inventories. We've seen some pretty terrible builds in recent weeks, so how did the most recent reports fare? Well, the API shows a 1 million barrel decrease. Not too bad, not too bad, not so bad at all. As for the EIA, it was reported that there was a 2.4 million barrel increase, which was thankfully below build expectations. So overall, not making too big of a dent in those huge builds we saw recently, especially if you look at that EIA data. I want to say that we're still in sort of a refining bottleneck, but even that seems to be improving. Gasoline, propane, and distillates all went sideways last week, which really means that not a huge build, not a huge draw, no change in general. They are now much closer to the center of that five-year range, but still in the lower percentile. Especially, gasoline is still about 10 million barrels shy of being on the low end of that five-year range, but distillates and propane were able to level out before plummeting into record low territory. This still leaves things in a peculiar place as a week of change could make all the difference for crude pricing. For now at least, gasoline is still just below that five-year range, and our CEO actually forwarded us an article last week that shows March fuel consumption is nearly average. This means that gasoline will likely remain lower than the five-year average as more and more people drive during the approaching warmer months. But hey, if we learned anything from the past year, and the most recent rig count report at least, we should be prepared for a massive swing in either direction. That is all I've got on the statistics side of things, so I think it is time we get into some of the news. If you've listened to this show for a while now, you know that I am a huge fan of geopolitical influences on pricing. Well, we've got an interesting one coming in from Venezuela today. In August of 2019, the Trump administration imposed sanctions on all government assets as they refused to support a corrupt regime. Unfortunately for Venezuela, the state owns the Petróleos de Venezuela S.A. or the PDVSA, which produces virtually all of the oil in the country, making it unsellable to the U.S. and other people respecting the sanction. Today, it seems the Biden administration may be considering easing the sanctions, and President Maduro is excited for this opportunity. If you haven't heard, Venezuela is in the middle of an economic crisis, refugee crisis, and plenty of political corruption that has lasted for many years now. There are plenty of interesting documentaries surrounding this topic, and I definitely encourage you to spend an evening with one, as it is some pretty interesting stuff. If Biden is to lift these sanctions that were implemented against President Maduro, it would be possible for the country to gain an economic foothold. Now, it wouldn't do much, but it would certainly be helpful. President Maduro would be able to capitalize on one of Venezuela's largest assets, oil. Let's look at Saudi Arabia. The EIA estimated at the beginning of 2020 that there was still 267 billion barrels of oil in their ground. That's proven reserves, to be clear. Reserves encompass all of the oil that is economically viable to extract. 
If we look at resources, well, that is a much different story. So again, that is 260 billion barrels of oil in Saudi Arabia that they could make money off of. In Venezuela, the EIA estimates that there was more than 302 billion barrels of oil in reserves. If we were to look at that in terms of national production from 2016, Venezuela has enough oil to last them another 364 years given they change nothing. Basically, they have a lot of oil and want to capitalize on that. Many big wigs of the international oil game were recently in Venezuela discussing potential to develop these reserves, and after they left the meeting, President Maduro said, quote, I want to tell investors from the U.S. and around the world that Venezuela's doors are open for oil investment. This is big. Additionally, Maduro is expected to pass a law that would kill the state-owned PDVSA's existing monopoly over the oil industry. Even if the U.S. does not lift its sanctions, we can only restrict trading under assets directly related to the government. If Total, Shell, or Equinor choose to begin operating on this land, there's nothing we can do about it. That oil is free to sell, and Maduro will likely take a significant chunk of the profit. Now, I hypothesize three scenarios regarding the U.S. and Venezuela. The first is least likely in my mind. It involves the U.S. lifting sanctions so oil can be produced on foreign land, making us look better environmentally. That aligns with many of the domestic goals of the Biden administration, and there are likely going to be lucrative deals for any super majors that want to replenish their reserves. I feel like this would kick off a super major migration to Venezuela and likely Suriname while they are at it. Hopefully, this would limit domestic competition for the small and mid-cap operators, and everyone would be happy. Again, uh, this is my least likely of the three. I feel the most likely situation is where the U.S. claims a humanitarian crisis. In the past, Opening a country's borders to international operators has not benefited the general public, especially in the case of corrupt governments. Take Equatorial Guinea, for example. President Teodoro Obiang has been the president since 1979 and has been notoriously corrupt for decades. When the nation opened its borders to production, there was plenty of scandal going on and money floating all the way to the top. It seems that things actually got worse for the people of the country as the president and his family got richer and richer. I'm talking like stupid money rich. His son used to keep his Ferrari and his multi-million dollar mansion in Malibu, which really served as the base for his million dollar Michael Jackson memorabilia collection. See, that kind of rich. The presidential family profited hard, and many American companies did too. Eventually, it prompted one of the largest evolutions in international corporate transparency, especially in the case of domestic American companies like Exxon, who had been gifting rather large amounts of money to Teodoro and his family. This is a great story that you can learn about in one of the chapters of Rachel Maddow's Blowout, which is a book that highlights some really interesting and intricate parts of oil and gas history, especially in the United States. Again, I think it is incredibly likely that the U.S. will try to prevent Maduro from exploiting his people like we have seen historically when countries open up their borders. Lastly, the third situation, nothing happens. Maduro opens the borders, but U.S. sanctions remain, and super majors are in hot water for trying to get into Venezuela. It is entirely possible that the U.S. will keep its own super majors from getting involved as we watch others produce far dirtier oil and make billions. Whichever way it goes, this is certainly a story you will want to keep up with. Lastly, I wanted to highlight something that I sort of saw as a win for the U.S. energy portfolio. Last year, natural gas-fired plants supplied 1.6 billion megawatt-hours of electricity, making it number one in generation, which is pretty standard. 
Usually, second place goes to coal-fired electricity, which generated 774 million megawatt hours last year. Well, the new second place winner is nuclear energy, which generated 790 million megawatt hours. While this is great for nuclear, it shows a bleak future for coal. In 2019, energy consumption from renewables briefly surpassed coal for the first time in modern American history, but remember that consumption is entirely different from generation. Now, this year, it has fallen in the ranks of power generation. Coal still plays a major role in energy generation, and I definitely think it has its place, but as far as hydrocarbons go, natural gas is the way. It is a fluid that can be transported by rail and pipeline. It has far fewer emissions per same unit of power generation, and is in slightly better standing with the local government. Now, I'm not saying that this is the death of coal. I'm just saying that perhaps now is the time to market as a reserve fuel. Rely on natural gas and nuclear for daily generation needs, but keep a coal plant around so that when a 30-year freeze comes in, you have enough supply to get everyone through safely and affordably. Hell, if you have a diesel plant doing the same thing, I see no problem. We could even use renewable on a smaller scale to supplement some of the energy needs when we do hit those peaks. I mean, we have the resources and technology for energy to be plentiful and cheap, so let's just be smart about it. Congrats to nuclear power generation for this big win, and hopefully we all navigate the energy transition with good intentions and smart minds. But of course, that is the end of this episode. I know it got a bit long, but I hope you learned something. If you didn't, or you have any other reason to complain, please, please, please contact me at podcast at rarepetro.com. If you were completely satisfied with the episode and it left you hungry for more, you can go to our website, rarepetro.com, to find dozens of pages and hours of content to read and listen to respectively. This is Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 